Joshua 4, we're walking through the book of Joshua. We're not going to go through the whole lot. There gets to be a little bit difficult towards the end, but I'm sure we'll cover that at some point or other. But we're up to chapter 4. So let me read from chapter 4. And it's interesting how much emphasis is given to individual things in the Bible, isn't it? You find that chapters 3 and 4 of a fairly uh, modest-sized book are given over to one thing, just crossing the Jordan River. I wonder if, you'd have, if you were writing this story whether you would have taken two chapters just to tell the story of people going across the water, telling what God's done. I enjoyed Liz telling us what God done, had done yesterday, or whenever it was. Was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. It's fascinating, isn't it? You never know what God is doing, do you? You could have been in Eastbourne yesterday as well, couldn't you? Never knowing that were people, as it were, targeting God and saying, okay, Lord, what do you want me to be and where do you want me to do and what do you want me to say? It's good, isn't it? Joshua 4 then. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them, that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priests came up to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed, in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000, armed for battle, crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran, ran in flood as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So Joshua tells them that this is a kind of reenactment of what happened at the Red Sea. You remember when they came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea within a very short while, and that was a wonderful, miraculous crossing. We're now 40 years down the road. This is a whole new generation, and Joshua tells them this is a kind of rerun. So this generation knows something of the wonderful purposes of God. But I bet some of you were thinking as I was reading that, he's very repetitive. Did you get that? It's like a preacher, isn't it? Preachers tell you what they're going to tell you, and then they tell you, and then they tell you what you told you. Isn't that right? And repetition is an important part of storytelling. If you have grandchildren or other little ones in your circle, and uh, you have the good stories, you find that there's a lot of repetition in it, because repetition builds up anticipation, gets the story well in engrossed in them so if you've got a, a fairly bright child and you read one of those kind of stories once they'll already have some of the repetition won't they it'll be in their minds as it builds up it's a good storyteller's trick and it's one of the ways that the narrator will tell you his point of view why he's telling you this story repetition will help us to see what his emphasis is and uh, so 12 men are chosen for a task, aren't they? In chapter 3, verse 12, already then, before ever they get all across, already Joshua's got to pick out 12 men for a task. And then he tells him to choose those 12 men and send them to pick up stones out of the river. And so Joshua obediently chooses 12 men, who then go to the river and pick up 12 stones, presumably fairly large stones, because they have to carry them on their shoulder. This is not pebbles, from the beach at Becks Hill. These are stones, sizable stones. They're going to make a cairn. And when they've gathered those 12 stones from the bed of the river, they take them to the side to Gilgal, some distance inland, on the, as it were, the promised land side of the river. And they set up the stones as a memorial site. And all the repetition tells us what this guy's about, what he wants us to remember from this part of the story. He's going to move on, they're going to do other things, but before we move too quickly past this event, he wants us to know something. And the whole business about the stones is very important. What do these stones mean? Why do they have to take 12 stones from the bed of the river, carry them over to the promised land and put them down at Gilgal? What is that all about? And this little account gives five reasons why they have to do that, why they have to build this cairn in what will become Joshua's kind of launch pad. He will set off to fight Jericho from here. He will set off to fight Ai from Gilgal. He'll go away from here to conquer the land and come back to it at a different point. It's kind of like his base camp. And he has to build a cairn of stones well, if you're a walker and you go to the Scottish Highlands or the Lake District or something, every now and again you'll find that people have tossed stones into a pile. And on a nice bright sunny day like today, you'll wonder why they did it. Go there on a very misty or a wet or a windy day and you'll know why they did it. 
because actually the, it can be so difficult to pick your path that people helpfully have built cairns, often at fairly regular intervals, in order that you can pick your way through and not come to trouble. But Joshua tells us there's five reasons for building this cairn. You see, they're very soon going to move away from this spot and get involved in all sorts of things. And within a generation, they're going to be basically settled down and living as settled people in the land. And you know what that means. It means they forget everything of the past and just keep moving forward. Well, we shouldn't live in the past, but we should remember the past. Otherwise, we will be committed to repeating it. Here's the first one. Then in verse 24, here's the first reason. It comes last in the story, but it's the first reason I'll give you this morning. And they are a sign, in verse 24, to the nations that God is all-powerful and he's the God of all the nations. God is all-powerful. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God, so that the nations will know that this God is all-powerful. You probably remember that the story of the Bible is played out at three levels, three distinct levels. At the third level, the highest level, it's like the big story, and that's the big story of God's salvation plans for the earth. The whole earth is under that. It begins with the Lord creating the earth, and it will finish with the Lord recreating the earth and populating it from people from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. So the big story of the Bible is the one that tracks that salvation story right the way through. It's a story of redemption. But at the second level, the lowest level, it's a story about God redeeming a people from himself. In the Old Testament, those people are the Israelites, the old covenant people of God. In the New Testament, they become the church, the New Testament people of God. And the Old Testament, of course, is concerned with that group of people. So the Old Testament is not all about Israel. It includes bits about other people as well. But that's, as it were, the second level. And then at the third level, the lowest level, you've got loads and loads and loads of stories about this person and that person and the other person that you probably know very well. But who feed into the whole. So as we read the small stories, we are looking to see how they fit into the big story. All right? Otherwise, it's just a collection of stories, like a collection of stories you might buy at Waterstones that are not necessarily connected together but may have a common detective or something that keeps the thread going. Well, the Bible stories are more than that. They're small stories that link into the bigger stories that tell us the great things that God has been doing. So when Jesus says in John 5, verse 39, these scriptures testify about me, he's not saying that every single story he's in there, because you won't find him in this story, will you? He's not in there. But he's in the big story. They testify in the sense that he is the great answer to every man's need. So we see how the smaller stories fit into those big stories. So the story in Joshua is not merely about this group of people going across a river. It is about them, but it's not merely about them. It's not even merely about the Israelites going into the promised land. It's about, ultimately, God's purposes in redeeming the world for himself. And we see how these stories fit into that. 
And what God wants the nations to know that he's the God of all the nations, not just Israel. It's a very important point. We mustn't forget that. God is not the God of the West. He's the God of all the earth, isn't he? The God of all the nations. We were praying earlier on about missionaries that have gone to Japan and other places, far-flung places in the world. They're not thrusting a Western God down these people's throats. They're telling these people the God who made their land too and who owns their land and them. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Here's the second one. It's also in verse 24. They are to provoke this idea of moving the stones and making a cairn is to provoke God's people to fear him. Now, please don't go away with the idea that I want you to go around in trembling terror of God. Though that is not an inappropriate response from time to time. If God is the God of all the earth, sometimes one person said, we, we speak sometimes about, come Holy Spirit, come. We ought to be wearing flash-proof crash helmets if we knew what we were praying. Because the Holy Spirit is dangerous stuff, isn't he? This is the Lord who terrified nations in the past. Now, he doesn't come to terrify us. I'm playing with words here. But we've got to get the idea that our God is a consuming fire and you don't mess with him, do you? The Israelites would say it another time to Moses. Please, please, don't let us speak to God. You go and speak on our behalf. We are terrified. That is an appropriate response to keep in mind. He's our Father who loves us. He is compassionate. We are always welcome to him. We have access to the Father. But let's not forget he's the God of all gods. Then he's big enough to deal with everything we could possibly have in mind. So he wants his people to have him in reverent awe and wonder. So he's always big. J.B. Phillips once read a book, wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. If we have a view of God as too small, he's no good to us when it's getting tough, is it? When things are tough, you need someone who knows things. It's no good Jim going down to the hospital and talking to people who know as much about medicine as he does. What good would they be then? He needs people who know more about medicine than he does. Then he can trust himself to them, knowing he's in good hands. My friends, when life is tough, as it is at the moment... You need a God who's big enough, don't you? Great enough. Who is far greater than we are. If he's the same size as us, if he's basically my mate, he's not going to be much good to me. But he's not. And you even have these glimpses in the wonderful person of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where God just couldn't hold it in. And suddenly for a moment in time, the glory of God was revealed in Jesus to remind his disciples that this is not just another guy come along for the ride. But he's the Lord of glory. The third one is in verse 14. It is to encourage, encourage the people to identify Joshua as God's choice of leadership. Verse 14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they revered him all the days of his life just as they had revered Moses. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? They hadn't revered Moses all the days of his life. That was half the problem. And they're going to be the same with Joshua, actually. But it's a hopeful one there. You see, God is the one who's going to do the business here. At the beginning, it's all God and nothing to do with the Israelites. They just do as they're told. 
But later on, they're going to get more and more involved. Because the way God usually works with us is that he calls people into leadership. And Joshua has that role. And it's vital that people recognise that Joshua has that role. Not because he asked for it, not because he sprayed millions of shekels around and got voted in on it, but because God chose him. And God wants that job to be a good one for Joshua. So the Hebrew writer will say, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They must keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's still a relevant thing in the days of the New Testament and still is today. I wonder how many church leaders today are finding their leadership a burden. Too many, I suspect. It won't always be a joy. We understand that. Life goes up and down. It's got its good parts and bad parts. But if the people of God really understand what God is asking, then they're going to obey their leaders in the Lord and submit to their authority. Jim, don't listen to this. Okay, there's lots of stuff. You can go to endless courses on leadership if you wanted to. But I've yet to find one that encourages us to be good followers. There's not a single course I've ever found that says how to be a good follower. They're all on good leadership, which is right and proper. And the thing it will work, you see, if the people really get behind Joshua and say, Joshua, all the time you hear from God, all the time you lead us in the purposes of God, you can bank on our support. We will do what God tells us to do through you. Then it sets Joshua free to hear from God and to lead them. He's not going to go off on strange tacks. He's not going to have some sort of some megalomaniac ideas. He's going to take this issue seriously. But if all the time they're saying, we're not sure, we won't agree, we don't think God's spoken all the time, it completely ruins any possibility of these people making progress, doesn't it? So it's very important they recognise Joshua is the leader. So they can get behind and work together. Because God wanted to be a joy for Joshua and great for the people of God too. And I suspect where this happens, things happen well in the body of Christ too. Where leaders really do come under the authority of God and listen to God and seek to lead their people. And the people say, all the time you're hearing from God and leading us in holy ways before God where you can count on our support. We won't always agree with you, but you can count on our support then I think it sets the people free to do what God wants without the struggles that sometimes ensue. Do you remember the Roman centurion when he had a servant who was sick and he sent to Jesus and said, would you please come and help and serve my servant and save my servant and heal my servant? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. He said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't come. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Do you remember that one? And then he goes on to say, because I also am a man, can you think of the next word? Under authority. I always used to think it was of authority, but it's under authority. Because he's saying, I'm a Roman centurion, but if I act as I ought to, under the authority of the emperor, then what I say has his authority, and it'll get done. Don't mess with me, in other words. And he recognizes in Jesus a man who was under authority because things happened. 
So he says, all you need to do is say the word because you're under authority. Leaders can only lead when they are under authority. But all the time they're under authority, they have the backing, as it were, of God. And they're also a... a, um, Fourthly, they are a prompt to remember God's faithfulness. And with his repetition, this is probably his key point, they're a prompt to remember God. They're a memorial to the people of Israel forever. As each of us gets older, one thing we have in common is this. Memory fades. Isn't that right? Memory kind of disappears. You find it more and more difficult to remember things. But even young people forget, which is a relief as the older ones. And the stones are intended to remind the people of what God has done. We'll come back to that in chapter 5 when we go to the Passover. But God is keen that they don't forget what God has done. Now you've just spent last year celebrating the fact that the, the church is 200 years old. You've been remembering the things. Now that's a good thing to do. Not to live in the past, but to remember those things because they inspire you for today. Isn't that true? A good memory is intended to help us look with confidence to the future. If this is what God did then, why can't he do it now? If this is how God treated us then, then why should he treat us differently now? If this is how the people of God sought God and found God and saw him act then, then we can trust the same God. He is the same God yesterday, today and forever. That's the purpose of remembering. So God wants them to have this prompt to memory. So they will constantly be doing that. Now we've just remembered communion. This is the the key service for all Christians, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. He wants to do it. Some churches do it once a year because they think it's so important. Others think it's so important. They do it every day. But whether you do it frequently or rarely... The point is we do it to remember what God has done. Most of you will be facing difficulties this year at some point or other. Some of you may even know what those difficulties may be. But every time we look at this, we know that God is able, don't we? That even if it doesn't work out this year as we would hope, even if it's more painful this year than we had liked it to be, This is what God has done for us. And if he's given Jesus to us, will he not give us all things? No, not necessarily all the things I want. But he promises to be with me. This is my touchstone. Not that things work out week by week, but that every week when I come and celebrate communion, I know, Lord, you are with me. It may not seem like it. You may seem miles away, but I know you're here. It's just I can't quite comprehend it. That even if life is difficult, more difficult than I would choose it to be at the moment, You are with me. I remember these things. So find the ways, my friends, of remembering what God has done so that when it gets tough, as it inevitably will, you're not at the mercy of your emotions, but you can say, Lord, it's painful and I would rather it's not happening, but I know you're here and I'm going to hold on to that. Hold on to that all the way through. And linked to that, the fifth one, of course, is a prompt so they can tell the young people, you tell future generations what God has done. Did you notice twice it said here, as you're walking along by the riverside or walking along by these, this cairn of stones, and you're walking with a young person, doesn't give the age of the person, but let's imagine a grandfather and a grandson. 
And the grandson says, here, Grandad, what's that big pile of stones for? And Grandad takes a good opportunity to rest from his walk and sits down on another stone and says, now let me tell you about the story. In the days of Joshua, long, long ago, and already the little boy's eyes are wide open. The people of God were that side of the river. Were they, Grandad? Yes, they were. And they came across this side. How did they get across, Grandad? God stopped the river and dried it up. Wow, he didn't. He did. He didn't. He did. Wow, Grand. That's the purpose of it, is to stir up questions. It's to make one generation tell the stories of God to the next generation. Not in a kind of boastful way, but to pass on the faith of the forefathers to a future generation. We have three grandsons. You've got, probably got loads more. What I want to pass on to them more than anything else is an inspirational view of God. I want them to know God more than anything else. Oh, I want them to have enough money and live nicely and have a good job and all the rest of it. But more than that, I want them to know God. And if there's ways in which I can tell them the stories of God, I want to do that, passing on. And this cairn of stones is meant to be a prompt to get them to ask questions. I hope the young people here ask lots of questions. Why do you do it that way and not this way? Why do you sit in rows and not in a circle? Get them to ask questions and inquire after why you do what you do. Because that way they will discover it's okay to ask questions about God and discover who God is. Find ways in your own family. It's why we stop at mealtimes, isn't it? So say thank you to the Lord. Just to remind ourselves that all good and perfect gifts come from God. It's a wonderful opportunity when you've got little ones around to say, we're going to stop and give thanks to God that he's given us everything today so far. And it just registers in their minds. It was lovely that little Jennifer came in for communion. I just think that was wonderful. Wonderful. So five reasons, but mostly I think it's to prompt to memory. Don't forget what God has done. And as this year opens up, please don't forget what God has done. And find ways of passing that on to a younger generation, passing it on to others in inspirational ways. I love listening to the stories of older people who've walked with the Lord for many, many years. I love listening to those. I find they inspire me in my own walk with the Lord. So find your own way of passing that on to others. Father, thank you that you are the God who in giving us Jesus gave us everything. And you haven't seen us across a physical river on dry ground or anything that will be marvelous like that. You've seen us out of a spiritual Egypt that was more of an imprisonment place than Egypt ever was for the Israelites. You've rescued us and given us a hope and a future. And Father, with all our hearts, we want to remember the good things you have done for us so that as we walk with you day by day, as we seek to be followers of Jesus day by day, we may walk in the confident knowledge that you are with us. And the things you've done in the past will give us hope and confidence for the future. And will you help us, Lord, to pass on those wonderful stories of Jesus to another generation so they all may also may put their hope and trust in you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.